0: This morning we are in First Samuel chapter fourteen. We're gonna pick back up in this story where we left off with last week. If you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles, it is page. 2.36. And we're in the midst of this long section looking at Saul, who is the first king of Israel, started out as a humble man, an effective leader. But as we've seen, he's quickly, quickly unraveling into corruption. He's been corrupted really by his own power. He's unraveling into pride and selfishness. He's, he's impatient and he has these rash actions. As he leads the nation. If you're looking at the ESV Bible, this section is, is titled Saul's rash vow. What do we mean when we say, well, that, that guy was out of line. He acted rashly. What do we mean by rash? To be rash is to be impulsive, okay? It's to do something that's reckless because you weren't thinking about it. You were thoughtless. And so you say something, you do something that's foolish, that's careless, and, and ultimately it's irresponsible, and it's because often you're acting rashly because you let your emotions, we say, get the better of you, right? And so you're thoughtlessly, carelessly spewing out some promise or some threat or or acting in some way, usually driven by anger, by frustration, without really considering the consequences. Now, those of you here today that are overly cautious, that tend to be more hesitant people, are like, well, I've never done a rash thing in my life, <laughs> right? Others of, of us, us know what it means to to do something rash, right? Parents, most of us remember a time when you were rash with your kids, when you made a promise or a threat that you thought later, was that really such a good idea, right? And so we say say thoughtless things like, if I see you jumping on the couch one more time while you're watching TV, I'm going to unplug that TV and put it in the garage for the next two weeks. Right. And then two minutes later, when you see them jumping on the couch, you're like, oh, no, I don't want to have to put the TV away. That means I can't watch it. That means the TV can't babysit my kids. Right. You're like, oh, I wish I could take that back. You know, or we say things like, if I see you eating junk food one more time without asking, you're not eating anything for the rest of the weekend. And then you're like, wait a minute, is that even legal? Am I allowed to, like, not to do that? You know, and it's, a, it's a rash statement that comes out of your mouth. And that's the, what we're going to read Saul do this morning. Him acting, speaking rashly. Now, you remember the setting. They're in this long battle with the Philistines. They're outnumbered. They're outgunned. We saw last week how Jonathan stepped up in faith, encouraged to attack this outpost which triggered then this string of events leading the Philistines to retreat in battle. The army rallies. Those that had deserted, those that had had defected, come back to the army of Israel, and they're now chasing the enemies of God out of the region in this massive retreat. And we read last week in chapter 14, verse 23, that the Lord saved Israel that day. And it's this great work of, of salvation. And, and this morning, as we pick up in verse 24, it's, it's really kind of a flashback. What's going to happen is the author is going to describe in more detail some things that happened during the retreat of the Philistines, as the army of God was chasing them out. Now, I've been talking recently with some, some different younger pastors about different, different ways that we preach and different types of sermons. Here's how this is going to go this morning. I'm going to, going to read 24, not all the way to 52, but most of the chapter. And then I'm just gonna unpack the whole story. And, and what I would encourage you is to kinda of dig in. Try to, try to connect to the story. And we're just gonna listen. I'm gonna explain the whole, the whole chapter, or the whole section of this chapter. And then all the way at the end, I'm gonna give us three takeaways. Okay? Because you really have to hear the whole story come together. You have to hear the climax and how everything wraps up to really figure out, okay, what does this have to do with, with me and you and Jesus? And so as you can tell by the sermon, the three takeaways are going to have to do with Saul and Jonathan and the troops and what we learn from them. So you might want to think about that as we read and as we unpack, think about the story from each of those three perspectives and how they respond and react and what we see the Lord doing. So I already prayed, let's jump in and read the word of God, 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged of my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. Now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahlon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said... God, do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. This is a great story. Let, let's let's take a minute and unpack it. Well, a few minutes. So remember, Jonathan has attacked the Philistine garrison. They've seen victory. The Philistines are fleeing. Saul is rallying the troops to go after them into battle. The deserters are coming back. Those that had defected to the Philistine army are returning. There's this huge wave, this huge victory. And in the midst of that, at some point, Saul makes a thoughtless, careless, ill-advised, I believe pride-driven demand on his troops. He makes a rash vow. In the midst of of this, he says, all right, everybody, mount up, right? We're going to chase the enemy. They're, They're fleeing. We're gonna go get them once and for all. Let's destroy the enemy. Let's run them down out of our region. We're gonna run fast and hard. But listen to me, I want you to stay focused. I want every warrior exhausted by the end of the day. I want you to give it all that you have. There's no stopping, no resting, no eating until this thing is done. If any man eats anything, it's all saying, I mean even one bite, you're gonna be executed. You're gonna be cursed nobody's eating anything today until I am avenged of my enemies that's what Saul says now you think about this there there is not a reason under the sun for him to do this right no political reason no military reason no religious justification for what he's he's doing why would a military general want his soldiers to be tired and hungry it makes no sense they're hard-pressed they're worn out they don't eat now listen, scripture does not tell us why Saul makes this ill-advised rash vow. And ultimately, I'm going to do some guessing in a moment, some hypothesizing. But ultimately, we don't know Saul's motives, right? We can only put the pieces together and read between the lines of scripture. Ultimately, it does seem like Saul is angry. It's very likely there's some jealousy wrapped up in this, right? His son, Jonathan, is the hero of the battle. His son, Jonathan, is the one that took action. I think it's very likely that Saul is is jealous of the attention his son is getting, and he's angry. Saul is power-hungry. He is trying to exert his authority over his troops to prove that he's king, that he has the right to command them. This does not seem to be about Saul honoring God. It doesn't even really seem to be about Saul trying to deliver his people. What does he say? I will have vengeance on my enemies, right? This is personal for Saul. There seems to be a lot of selfish pride here. So he makes this rash vow, but we read in verses 25 to 27 how Jonathan, who we know was stationed apart from Saul's main force. So Jonathan is bringing his troops in to rout the Philistines from a different location. Jonathan, the king's son, doesn't hear the vow. And as they're running through the forest... Right? We read in, in probably a lot too much detail for some of you how the honey was dripping and the honeycomb on the ground. Jonathan reached out. He, he has a little taste of honey. right? And we read that immediately he gets this sugar rush. His eyes light up. He's got this burst of energy. right? Honey, the original all-natural organic energy boost used today by endurance athletes around the world. right? And Jonathan is like, he gets this honey. He's like, let's go. right? I, I've got some renewed energy. My eyes are bright. Everybody else is just standing there. Look, what have you done, Jonathan? Right. Nobody else is eating. Everybody's just looking at him. Finally, one guy speaks up and is like, Hey, uh, Commander John, did you not hear the oath that your father made? We're not supposed to be eating anything until Saul is avenged of his enemies. If you do eat, the king said you're going to be cursed. And Jonathan looks around in verses 29 and 30. He looks around at how tired and weary everybody is. And what does he say? He says, well, no wonder everybody is so exhausted. My father has troubled us with this frivolous oath. He's like, look how energized I was just from a little bit of of honey. Can you imagine what we would have done to our enemies if we had eaten of their spoils? The defeat of the Philistines would have been much greater without my father burdening us with this ridiculous oath. So we read in 31 how by the end of the day the the Israelites do chase the Philistines. They do strike them down. But the story continues in verse 32. It's it's the evening now. The sun has gone down. Okay, in in the Hebrew uh, uh, way, the Hebrew thought of of. The day and the sunset, the next day starts at sundown, right? So the sun has gone down. Now they're all released from their vow. It's the end of the day. They can eat whatever they want. So they start grabbing cows and and sheep, and they're slaughtering oxen right on the ground, and they're just tearing and devouring this meat. Now here's the thing. The Israelites, God's people, had very strict dietary laws, right? If you've read through Exodus and Leviticus, you know that there are kosher laws, The blood is supposed to be properly drained in a very specific way before meat is eaten. And they're not taking the time to do that because they're famished, they're desperate, they're so hungry. Saul, in verses 33 and 34, finds out, and he can't believe what the people are doing. He says the people are acting treacherously. Now, to act treacherously... To be a treacherous person means betrayal. means that you are being disloyal. You're being unfaithful. Who are the people being unfaithful and disloyal to by eating meat without draining the blood? They're being disloyal to God. That's what it says in verse 34. They're sinning against the Lord. Now now here's the thing. By the way, you can challenge me on this. Every commandment in God's Word has a reason. Okay? So when God called his people not to eat meat with blood in it. He wasn't just like making stuff up and trying to be random and annoying for his people. He tells us in Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. He says, I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It, it is the blood by reason of the life that atones for your sins. See, God had set aside the blood of an animal as a sacred element Is a representation of the very life of the animal. So that when an animal was sacrificed on the altar, and the Israelites saw the blood drain out, and the blood sprinkled on the altar, they would know this life was given in place of me. It was for the purposes of atonement. And so eating... The, the, the meat of the animal without draining the blood was, in essence, desecrating the whole sacrificial system, was, in essence, betraying God and the means of atonement, the means of, of, of repair that he had given the people to seek him. And so Saul rightly says, the people are acting in betrayal. Now, now, what's interesting, if you step back for a minute and look at this, is that sadly, tragically, the people are terrified of breaking Saul's rash vow right? They, they don't want to eat even a, even a drop of honey. But somehow in their desperation and their hunger, they aren't afraid to bake, break God's divine commandment. And they willingly break the law of God, though they won't break the rash vow of their king. So Saul grabs a big stone, essentially making a table. He sends out men into the camp, says, tell everybody to bring their animals here we're going to properly slaughter them and butcher them according to the law of God here on this stone table and drain out the blood and and try to eat properly before the Lord and it says in verse 35 that as Saul is doing this he builds an altar to the Lord to, to offer sacrifices and praises. Now this would not have been what would have happened in the tabernacle. Atonement for sin only happens in the tabernacle. This would have been an altar Saul had made of dedication and thanksgiving to God. And where the narrator tells us it was the first altar that Saul has made. And most commentators agree that's not a compliment to King Saul. It's the very first time he had made an altar and offered praise and thanks to the Lord. Saul seems to be trying to like make up for the sins of the people. Well, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's build an altar and try to give God some praise and maybe everything will be okay. But you kind of have to wonder at this point, like Saul, is your heart really in it, right? So it's nighttime. They've been chasing the Philistines all night. They finally are all day. The night's come. They finally eaten. The story goes on in, in verse 36. Likely that very same night, Saul says, you know what? Let's head out under the cover of darkness. Let's see if there's any more of God's enemies in the land. Let's plunder them until every last one is defeated. And what, is, what do all the troops say in verse 36? Despite Saul's erratic behavior, they're still obeying him as king. And they're basically like, yes, sir, whatever you want. Now, the priest stops reading verse 36, and he says, well, hold on, Saul. Maybe we should draw near to God and get direction from him. Like, after all, we've already had pretty good victory. We just had this whole big debacle with people breaking the kosher laws. Like, are you sure this is a good thing? So Saul follows the advice of the high priest in verse 36, 37. And he basically prays, and is like, God, should we continue this campaign further? And God doesn't answer him. The Lord is quiet. Saul feels cut off. He tries to look to the Lord for direction, but all he sees is darkness and emptiness and distance. See, listen, Saul has not completely abandoned God. We have a lot of criticisms and concerns of Saul's leadership. But he has not completely abandoned God. He does still want to hear from God. He does still want God to lead him, right? But it kind of seems like he he wants God on his terms. He wants God to lead him in the ways that Saul wants to go. Saul seems to be a man who puts himself first and and thinks of God maybe second if somebody brings it up. So Saul only gets silence from the Lord. In verses 38 and 39, he's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. He believes that God has cut himself off from the nation, and he he rightly assumes it's probably because of some sin. And so in his frustration with with any lack, with a clear lack of direction, he's got to figure out what to do. I would imagine Saul's probably wrestling with some some guilt in himself, probably some insecurity, right? He's supposed to be king. He's supposed to be hearing from the Lord. And so he gathers all of his commanding officers together and he makes a pledge to figure it out. And he says this in verse 39. he He says, as the Lord himself lives, the Lord who is Savior of Israel, whoever is responsible for cutting us off from the Lord will be punished. If someone's sin is cutting us off, that man is going to be put to death. Even it's my own son, Jonathan, we're going to deal with this issue. Now, looking at this story, I immediately want to cry out, like, Saul, stop! Like, enough already! Right? Why are you continuing to to act out another senseless rash vow? But what do the people do? We're told there, nobody says anything. They all just sit quiet as Saul now is making a second rash vow. I also have to stop and wonder for a moment, why does he call out his son Jonathan? He's like, no matter who it is, they'll be put to death. Even my son Jonathan, right, who's one of his commanding officers, who's just led the people into victory. Again, I have to sort of stop and wonder, like, is Saul being driven by jealousy? Is he calling out his son? Is he potentially even looking for an excuse to put put him down, that he could be further lifted up? I mean, after all, They just had a whole night where basically every troop in the camp had sinned by breaking the dietary laws. And yet he picks out his son, Jonathan. It just all seems so senseless. And nobody says a word. They're all afraid. They're all confused. They all stay quiet. So in verse 40, Saul divides everybody up. And here's how this works. Let me explain this. He puts all the troops on one side and he and his son, Jonathan, stand on another. The two commanding officers of the nation. And he says he's going to cast lots. Now, he, here, here's what's going on here. We're told earlier that the priest is, is with Saul, and we're told that the priest was wearing his, his ephod, his, his priestly garment, his apron. There would have been 12 stones on the front of his, of his uh, chest plate on the, on the priest's apron, each of the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Additionally, the high priest would have had what were likely two smooth stones, We don't get a lot of detail about this in Scripture, but most scholars agree. Likely we had two identical stones, identical shape and size, that would have been kept in a pocket, in the the front chest pocket of the priest. And if they needed direction from the Lord, they would cast lots, much like flipping a coin. Except in this case, one stone was probably light, one stone was probably dark. They would ask the Lord a question. The priest would reach in and grab out one of the stones and indicate, you know, like heads... You know, you win, Tails, I win, whatever it is. So he says, Look, if it's Thumim, right, that means it's 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 on me and Jonathan. And if it's Ermim, it's on it's on the, the people. I may have gotten that reversed. And so the the priest then casts lots, it falls to Jonathan and Saul. They then cast lots again between Saul and Jonathan, and the lot falls to Jonathan. Now, all eyes are on Jonathan. Now, his, his people know what he have done. They know that he broke Saul's vow and ate the honey. I kind of wonder at some point if Saul hadn't gotten wind of the fact maybe that Jonathan had broken Saul's oath. But we don't know that. So Saul screams at Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan's like, I mean, I did eat a little honey. But then Jonathan says this, but if you are serious, go ahead, here I am, I'm ready to die. And you think, what? Why would Jonathan give up so easily? Why would he offer to give his life, right? He, we already know he's a brave guy, he, he daringly attacked the Philistine garrison, right? He's full of courage, but, but, but here's the deal. The nation is at a critical state, one of many critical states. And, and I believe Jonathan recognizes, look, if it is truly my guilt, if it is truly my guilt that has cut off God from our people, if I am the one that's hindering the nation, well, I'm willing to die for the people. I'm willing to die to put us back into right relationship with God. Now look at Saul's reaction in verse 44. I, I cannot fathom this. He, he's not heartbroken that his, his sons has sinned, right? He's not proud of his son's courage, Saul is enraged. He says, Jonathan, you deserve to die, and may God kill me if I don't have you put to death. Now at this point, the officers and the, and the troops standing around, look at verse 45, finally, you're like, okay, finally someone stand up to Saul. And, and verse 45 is the climax of the whole story. And finally the troops speak up. And they say to Saul, Jonathan, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now, now we should be cheering at this point, right? It's like finally, finally. The, the, the troops recognize. Jonathan is on the side of the Lord. He is working with God today. What is the implication of that statement? The implication is Saul, you're working against God. We're putting an end to this because Jonathan, he's with God. Saul, you have to stop it. You are no longer leading the people in godly ways. You are standing against the purposes of God. Listen, they stand up for Jonathan and in so doing, they are betraying King Saul in saving Jonathan's life, and putting their lives on the line, because that's essentially what they, they did. They said, Saul, you're going to have to get through all of us. You're going to have to kill all of us before we let you take Jonathan, because he's with God and we're with him. And so they essentially break their allegiance to the king. Can you imagine how humiliating this would have been for Saul? He, before all of the commanding officers and all of the troops, his leadership has now just been publicly undermined. They no longer trust him they recognize, Saul, you are rash, you are prideful, you are short-sighted, and there's essentially a revolt. And so Saul, in verse 46, he gives up his plans to continue pursuing the Philistines, and they all go home. And finally, this like three-chapter scene is done, right? Okay, you got it? That's the story. Now, what are we going to do with this? All right, it's the Word of God. We believe it speaks to us. We believe that it all looks forward to Christ. We believe that you and I can hear from the Word of God. So three takeaways, three three main characters. First, let's look at Saul. Let's look at, at Saul's failure. Saul, who is arrogant, who is selfish, who is rash, who is unrepentant, who has shown again and again that he's impatient, that he's impulsive, that he's driven by pride, that he is self promoting Saul who seems to not really be interested in the good of the nation he's interested in his own good and it leads to his failure he's acted in rash and reckless ways he's been brash and irresponsible he continues to take matters into his own hand without waiting on God the essence of pride is putting yourself first and God becomes at best God becomes an afterthought and that's what we see in the life of of Saul. Yeah, sure. He, he does still believe in God. He does still want direction from God, but only when he wants it. He wants God on his terms. And arrogance means selfishness. It means you are self-centered, not God-centered. It means you are self-promoting, not God-promoting. And what does what Saul said? We remind ourselves of his words. Nobody's going to eat I am going after my enemies, no one eats a thing until I have vengeance on my enemies. He doesn't care about the glory of God, he doesn't care about the good of the nation, even when he sees his troops sinning, breaking the kosher laws, he stops them, which he should do, but again, you have to sort of wonder, like Saul, what, where's your heart in all of this? He builds an altar to the Lord, but is that just a superficial attempt to kind of put a band-aid on the situation and keep God at, at bay or is he truly seeking God? We don't have any record of him going to the tabernacle and truly offering an atonement for sin for the people's disobedience. He makes a foolish rash vow forbidding the troops from eating and then when it becomes clear that everything has gotten messed up, he makes another rash vow threatening to kill who's ever cut them off from God. And here's the thing. At any point in time, Saul could have stopped himself. He could have been like, you know what, guys, this is out of hand. I'm sorry. I should have never said that. Can can we, can we do like a rewind? Can I take that back? I should have never said that. Can can we just admit I made a mistake? Can, Can we just, you know, take some time to pray and fast and repent? Instead, what does he do? He digs in his heels. He just digs himself deeper and deeper and deeper. He makes a second rash vow to make up for the first rash vow. Now, here's the amazing thing, right? God covers all of his bases, and he covers all of our bases. If you look at Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 to 6, God, in his law, specifically makes a provision to say, if you make a rash vow, and you realize later, oh, I shouldn't have said that. God says, here's how you take it back. And he lays out in his law. If you make a a rash oath and realize later what you've done, you confess your guilt, you bring an offering to God to atone for your sin, and God says, you are then released from that vow. Okay? This, This is not like one of those situations like, you said it, you can't take it back. God says, no, no. Admit your mistake, confess it, and you can take it back. Saul didn't have to carry out all that he did. But he's driven by his own pride. And so we now look at ourselves. We look at ourselves. Where, where is God in our lives? Are we putting Him first? Are we honoring Him first? Are we truly humbly seeking Him, not on our terms, but say, God, I seek You on Your terms. And I'm willing to be led by You. And I'm willing to admit my mistakes. I'm willing to, to if I need to walk back a promise, a vow, a statement, a commitment that's ungodly, I will do so, Lord. Because listen to this, the opposite of self-centered pride is God-centered humility. Isn't that right? I think about times in my own leadership when I allowed my my selfishness and my pride and my own own man-centered anger to get the best of me. I was thinking about a time, I think it was about 10 years ago, because I think it was right before uh, Sybil was born. We were planning a missions trip to Ecuador. I, I've been friends with Pastor John down in Ecuador for 20 years. We were leading this trip, and, and we were, had a baby coming. And so I, I did hopefully the right thing and said, I probably should stay home with my wife. Right? And so another leader in the church was leading the trip to Ecuador. But but Pastor John in Ecuador is my friend. Right? And, and, and he's my connection. And so I'm kind of talking this other leader through this. And I'm saying, look, reserving like 15, 20 plane tickets on international travel is kind of a big deal. You need to get ahead of it. Like we should be months and months ahead and you need to get involved with the travel agent. And this, this leader kept putting it off and kept putting it off. I tried to graciously like remind him, but I was also trying to give him space. It came down to literally like now, like this is go time. Like you don't get plane tickets to fly internationally, like whatever it was a month. I don't know. And he comes back to me, and he's like, man, I messed up. I put it off until the last minute. I, I got this, this travel arrangement done. He's like, but the team's on two different flights. And I, like, lost it. And I raised my voice to the guy, and I, and I yelled at him, and I was angry. I was upset. Now, there was part of me that was genuinely, like, had good leadership. Like, I was worried about the people that were going to go on this trip, that were now going to have to be at two different flights and wait in the airport and make everything complicated. But you know what else was in my mind? i got to have to call Pastor John and explain to him why we couldn't get our act together and why now he and his logistical team on the ground is going to have to arrange for two separate airports, right? It's a big mess. But I was also upset that this guy hadn't listened to me and he hadn't followed my advice. And if he had just done what I had wanted from the beginning, then we would have avoided right? my, my anger. And my selfishness and my pride had gotten in the way. And as is often the case, our motives are mixed, and I understand that. See, but the opposite of self-centered pride is God-centered humility. But, by the way, the irony was that he had actually just read the reservation report, and we had two separate reservations, but they were both for the same flight. So it all worked out. You, you may or may not struggle with being rash and reckless to varying degrees with your words or with your actions. What, what is the opposite? What are we called to be rather than prideful and selfish and impulsive? The opposite of being rash is to be sensible. Friends, listen, it, it means to be level-headed and prudent with your decisions and your actions. It means you take time to be reasonable and rational, to think first. First. Right? And if you've got to follow like Daniel Tiger's advice and count to 10 before you speak, then do that. Be careful. Be responsible. Be a person that doesn't act first and, and think second. You're responsible. You're reasonable. You're led by the Spirit of God. Proverbs 12:18 says it like this. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. And some of you are like, I, I've been on both the giving and the receiving, and I know what it's like to have a sword thrust into my gut by somebody who's speaking out of anger or selfish pride. Others of you are like, I've delivered some of those sword thrusts. God help me. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Brothers and sisters, we're to be people of healing. As, as James writes, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone, every person be quick to hear Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And your own anger is never going to produce the righteousness of God. It's never going to honor the Lord. It's never going to bless your people with words of healing and wisdom. And so we should be quick to to hear others and slow to speak and certainly slow to anger. Our calling as followers of Jesus, is to be filled by His Spirit, to live and to walk as as Jesus walked, to live and to walk as the Spirit leads us in His fruits, to be people of of love and joy and peace in our interactions with others. People who who walk in patience, not impatiently going off on others, in kindness and goodness. People of of gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Ultimately, self-control is spirit control. Amen? Giving yourself up to the Lord. And so we, we learn from Saul's failure. God, give us grace to be humble leaders that put others first, that are, are patient and wise, and that admit our mistakes. Before we move on, look, look down at verse 47 if you still have your Bibles open, because we before we look at things from Jonathan's perspective and learn from him, I do want to just look for a moment at what is kind of a summary statement, an epilogue to this story, and we read in verses 47 to 52, we didn't read it, but we we get a record of Saul's wife, and his sons, and his daughters, and his lead military general, and we read this statement that Saul continued to be a valiant warrior, he continued to fight Israel's enemies on every side, and he led them, as king of Israel, he led them into much victory. Now, we would love to just put Saul in, in like the villain category, right? Because we, we like movies where things are cut and dry and simple, you know, and give me, give me a novel, give me a movie where it's like, that's the good guy, and that's the bad guy. But as I said to you when we started this series, the problem with reading the Old Testament, purely looking for good examples to follow and bad examples to denounce, is that often there's a mix of both. And, and here's the reality that we can't get away from. Saul, despite all of his faults and failures, is still used by God. That's what the end of this chapter is, is summarizing. He continues to fight for Israel and lead them to victory. And as we see throughout Scripture, listen, God uses those with spiritual and moral failures to lead his people and to accomplish his purposes. Why? Because that's ultimately the only kind of people God has to work with. And so God works even through King Saul. If you look at at verse 52. The narrator is going to do some foreshadowing. It says there, when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. What's the purpose of that verse? The purpose of that verse is to say this Saul has failed, but David is coming. And David will be a man after God's own heart, who will not, not be perfect. But there's another man coming. Saul is going to attach himself to one who is faithful, who is humble, who does seek the Lord, who is also broken and fallen. All right, so we learned from Saul's failure. Let's look at Jonathan now. Let's look at Jonathan's courage as we consider how this story impacts our, our lives. We see in Jonathan that the humble sacrificed himself in submission to God. Jonathan has shown courage in battle, and now we see his courage in the face of death. And despite what I believe are legitimate concerns with his father's leadership, Jonathan still remains humble and faithful. He's submitted to the king of the nation. He's obedient to his father, obedient to the law of the land. Now, now get this for a moment. When when the priest took took those stones out of his breastplate to, to, to cast lots, the lot fell to Jonathan. Jonathan knows, right, that he did, in fact, eat the honey that the king commanded him not to eat. And it may in fact be, despite how little Jonathan may feel like he's done wrong, it may be him that is blocking the voice of God from the nation. And so he's willing to step up and to stand up and to sacrifice himself. Jonathan was not being a coward. Listen, man, listen. Jonathan was not being a coward by giving himself up that day. He was being courageous and submitting for the good of the nation. Instead of arguing, instead of fighting, instead of pushing back against Saul, instead of, instead of countering a, a, a contingent of people to subvert the king, Jonathan submitted himself, and he says in verse 43, Here I am. I will die. That was not That was not weakness. That was incredible strength. And in that moment, in that statement, I see Christ. Jonathan was willing to die to restore the nation back to God. And he submitted himself. When we think about the prophecies of our Savior Jesus from Isaiah 53. The anointed one from God, our Savior, who was oppressed, was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it sears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And the New Testament, reflecting on this, the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus. Peter, who was about as rash as any New Testament leader can be, right? He was always putting his foot in his mouth. But he's finally learned at this point as he writes this letter. Peter, the Apostle, has finally learned humility. Has finally learned, wait a minute, the example of Jesus is an example for you and I. And he writes in that letter, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And in verse 23, he reminds us of that example. When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, are we people who constantly step up in pride, defending ourselves, arguing with ourselves, or do we entrust ourselves? we entrust ourselves to God and submit ourselves to Him? It, it sounds a little bit belittling in light of what Jonathan is, is is doing, but but are we willing to take one for the team, right? Because 99% of the time, it doesn't mean we're, you're going to actually die, right? It just might mean you're humble, you submit, you confess, yep, it was me. Men, there's not a husband or a father here, that would not in an instant step in front of a of a bullet for your wife and your children and as I've said to you before that the point is not would you die for your family because I don't question that for any of us the, the point is this will you live for your family right will you humbly live for your family will you day by day walk as a living sacrifice submitting to God not to put yourself first, but to put your Savior Jesus first, and to serve those around them. That's what we see in Jonathan's courage, humility, and sacrifice, as Jesus Himself did for you and I. Let's look lastly, and thirdly, at our third takeaway. Let's look at, at the troops' betrayal, and uh, if you haven't caught it already. I mean, I mean betrayal in, in two senses of the word. You'll find you'll find out. But we see in them that the righteous stand with God to ransom those under the sentence of death now now I'm frustrated as I read this story right because I'm like is there not one outspoken person who would have said something to Saul earlier but they all just shut up they go along yes sir yes sir until what until they don't right they follow blindly then they betray God by eating the the blood that was not meant to be eaten Saul is reckless, his leadership is untrustworthy, but they just keep going until finally they don't. Until finally they have enough of, yes, Saul, whatever you want, sure, Saul, whatever you want. And then they're like, wait, 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 what? You're, you're going you're to kill Jonathan? No, Saul. And so they finally step up. When Saul's selfish, rash, reckless ways go too far, they stand up and they put a stop to it. Now here's the thing. Saul was correct. When they ate the meat without draining the blood they were acting treacherously they were betraying the king of heaven but as i said earlier in that moment when they stand up for jonathan they now betray their human king but as we've read jonathan was with god and that statement of saying no no saul we 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 now turn from you we stand with jonathan because we are standing with god and in pledging their allegiance to Jonathan and the Lord, they are betraying their human king. And we talked about this in Life Group a few weeks ago. Brent brought up this beautiful point that often to side with God means you have to betray the authorities of this world. Does that make sense? If you're going to stand with God, you will often have to, to, to betray the authorities of this world. And that's what the people do. Jonathan had been sentenced to death and the king had the authority to do it, but the troops paid Jonathan's ransom that day with their own lives. They're saying, no, we put our lives on the line. And if you're serious about killing Jonathan, you're going to have to kill all of us first. And they stood with Jonathan who stood with God. And in so doing, they betrayed Saul. And they ransomed the life of Jonathan. This word ransom is the Hebrew word "padal." It is to redeem. It's the same word used in much of the Old Testament. to, To ransom someone. It's the same way we use the word today. right? If someone is kidnapped. If someone is sentenced to death. And you pay the ransom. That means you are giving something of yourself. That they might be set free. And in the Torah. The book of the Old Testament. When someone had sinned when someone needed to be punished, there were certain conditions that could be met in certain circumstances to ransom their life. And you could buy someone out of slavery. You could exchange an animal as a ransom for that person. And in essence, what we're reading here in this story is the nation stepping up to ransom the life of one man. And listen, Jonathan got his life back that day, because if no one had spoken up, if none of the troops had said anything, Jonathan most certainly would have been executed. And, and I think as we read the rest of 1 Samuel, it sheds new light on the life of Jonathan. Keep this in mind as we continue to read the story. Imagine what that did for Jonathan's sense of calling and purpose and meaning. And we'll go on to read how Jonathan has this, I believe, renewed sense of courage and purpose and honor, how he lives for the Lord, how Jonathan steps aside to support God's purposes and ultimately to support King David when he rightfully could have tried to take the throne, but he now will stand behind the Lord's anointed because he knows his life has been ransomed. And he will commit himself to the Lord. And so in this brave, sacred act of the nation ransoming the life of one man, we can't help but remember the one man who ransomed the life of the nation. Amen? Jesus, he said himself, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And Peter, the same apostle, the same follower of Jesus, We'll say this in another one of his letters. And I say this to you, sons and daughters of God. If you call on him as father, God in heaven, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so we, as we wrap up today, we we remember the ransom of Christ. We remember the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus who came that we could know God, who came that we could know our Heavenly Father, that when our lives were on the line, when we faced the judgment of God because of our rightful sin, Because of our pride. Because of the selfishness that you and I wake up every day and still battle front and center. Because of our desire to promote ourselves in every conversation, in every interaction, in every business exchange, in in every financial dealing, in, in every ministry scenario. We have to fight against that urge not to promote ourselves and push ourselves. Jesus ransomed himself to set you free from that. From the times when you were rash, From the times when you and I act out in anger, when we are thoughtless. You say, well, I never speak it. I have enough self-control not to speak it. Okay, Jesus died for the sins that are even in your heart that no one else but you and him know about. When you're careless, when you're so careless, you unknowingly, unthinkingly put yourself first and put God second. All of those instances in thought, in word, and deed, when you and I have betrayed our Father, our Creator, our King... Jesus came and said, I will give up my life for the nation, for God's people, that you might walk free. And so now the word of God says, conduct yourselves with fear, not fear of punishment, but fear. And in all of God who has done this great work, that you might know him, that you might have abundant life, that you might walk now as a son of God, as a daughter of God in this life and on into eternity. Conduct yourselves rightly before God as people of faith people of obedience, people of humility, all by the grace of God. This work is the work of grace. And not one of us can walk out of this room and eliminate our pride. Not one of us can walk out of this room and walk as people of grace and patience without the Spirit of God filling us. And so just as Jesus laid down His life and died for you, He rose again to fill you with His Holy Spirit that now men and women, young men and young women, you can live for the Lord because His grace is enough. When you fail, His grace is enough. When you are disinterested, His grace is enough. When your pride and your arrogance has pushed God nearly out of sight, His grace is enough. When you are too tired, when the grief is too deep, when you are too sad, too lonely, too afraid, His grace is enough, amen, to fill you. And so with that call and that reminder of the life of Jesus ransoming us, We close out again in in a song of worship. As the worship team comes, let's turn our hearts to the Lord. Knowing that we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, God's own son. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, many of us come today heavy and hurting. Many of us come today empty and, and tired. Many of us come today full of shame and guilt, perhaps still actively in rebellion. Many of us come today so, so full of our own pride we can't even see it. And so we pray and we ask and we plead that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you, to hear that call, the call to come in faith and in repentance and humility to a God that is as bigger and all-knowing, and loving, and gracious beyond all that we can ever imagine. And so we wait, we wait on Emmanuel, God with us, and we say, come, come Emmanuel, come into our hearts, come into our lives, come into our families, and our church, come into our nation, come into this world, and ransom captive Israel, ransom those that are captive in the body of Christ. Ransom, Holy Spirit, those today whose hearts still need to turn to you, whose eyes still need to be opened to you. Would you ransom us out of our imprisonment to sin, the hardness of our heart? We thank you for the grace of God and for the mercy of God and for the precious blood of Christ. Come, Emmanuel, and do your work.